Alex has been the speaker at track the last three years at both boys and girls camp, and I'm excited for, uh, for him to come and share with us today. So let's give it up for Alex. Okay. Well, I didn't know people were going to uh, share about me this morning, so um, <laughs> no pressure for me, I guess. Um, so... Yeah, Greg kind of explained a lot of the background. I've gotten to teach a track, and by sheer coincidence, actually, this year at Harvest Youth Group, where I also volunteer, we did a whole series on Joseph, so I've been studying Joseph for a while now, so it's, I've been getting to sit in that. Now, the thing is, at Youth Group, we had a whole series. At track, we had a whole weekend. Here, we have a whole sermon. <laughs> so I'm going to be going very fast. This will be the, the speedrun version of the story of Joseph. But I'm going to do my best to convey a lot of the themes that we covered at track this year. And so in authenticity to track, we will be in this Bible. This is a camper Bible. This is the one we give the campers. It's in the NLT version. If that's new and unfamiliar to you, don't worry about it. It will be on the screen as well. And yeah, uh, the other thing I will encourage you to do, though, is because we are going very fast... I'm going to encourage you to read the story for yourself. It's actually a fascinating story. It's got all the good stuff you want from a story and conflict and drama and resolution and all the, all the good things. Um, and plus, I want to challenge you a little bit because at camp, I encourage students to read it for themselves. And then I had a couple of campers actually read ahead during their free time at camp and they came back to the, the session the next morning and were like, oh, oh I know this part. Um, so if a couple of middle school or early high schoolers can do it, uh, so can you. So... <clears throat> So we are going to be covering chapters 37 through 50. That's a lot of chapters. We will be skipping some. We will be skipping chapter 38 because it has nothing to do with Joseph. And also, it's got some stuff. Uh, parents, if you want to read the story with your kids, maybe read that one first. Be care um, anyway, we'll also be skipping some chapters towards the end just because they have more to do with Jacob, Joseph's father, and we're not going to have time to talk about him as much. However, the place I'm going to start is actually back in Romans 8. And the verse is... Eight, verse is 28, which is, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. That was our memory verse for camp. That was what we had the campers memorize. It's a verse that I do feel like is an easy one to sort of take out of context sometimes because it's easy, you look at that verse and you think like, wait a minute, okay, everything, like all the things are going to work together for good? And in fact, if you know some of the context of this verse, you know that the Apostle Paul was writing it to people who were suffering persecution. It wasn't all good for them. So at, at camp, we got to go through this in the context of the story of Joseph. So starting in chapter 37, I'm just going to read the first few verses to set the scene. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them, and they couldn't say a kind word to him. So, we set the scene here. Here's this kid, Joseph. He's 17. He's his father's favorite. Now, Jacob is kind of known for playing favorites. Actually, a, a brief snapshot of his story. It's, it's wild. You can read that. It's also in Genesis. Um, but basically, he had four wives and 12 kids. That's a lot. Uh, he only wanted one wife. He had, ended up with four. Go read it. It's a whole story. But 
That one wife ended up being his favorite. It caused a lot of strife and a lot of fighting between his wives. And, well, that favoritism kind of extends to the new generation because that wife ended up having two kids. They ended up being the two youngest kids in the whole family, Joseph and his younger brother, Benjamin. And so Jacob shows favoritism, and he's not subtle about it either. This is not, hey, don't tell the other brothers, but you're my favorite. This is, hey, everyone, look at the fancy coat. No, you don't get one. So everybody knew it. Joseph's brothers knew it. Joseph knew it. Because, in fact, one, you know, later on, he has a dream uh, that they're all out in the field. They're binding up bundles of wheat. And all bundles all stand up. And then everyone's bundle bows down to Joseph's bundle. His brothers didn't miss the, you know, the subtle point there of that dream. Um, and Joseph was happy to share this dream. He was happy to share another one where the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed down to him. And then at that point, his father was doing the math, being like, wait, son, hey, wait, wait a minute. Um, anyway, Joseph was like, he was aware he was, uh, he was, he was the favorite. Um, but his brothers, over the years, they let every insult and every slight, I mean, here's this younger brother who is in charge of them, which if you're the younger sibling out here, you're probably thinking, as it should be. Um, if you're the older sibling, you're like, oh, no. Yeah, the older brother, these older brothers, they did not like that at all. Every insult, it all adds up. And one day, Jacob sends Joseph to go check on them as they're keeping the sheep in a very far out place in the wilderness. Um, they see him coming from a ways off, and they think, ah, now is the time where we can finally take care of this little dreamer. Uh, and by take care of, I mean in the mafia sense of take care of. They plan to kill him and dump his body in an empty cistern. So if you don't know what that, if you haven't ever heard that word before, um, a well is a place you take water out of. A cistern is a place you put it into so you can take it out of later. So these are empty. It's in the ground. They're thinking, ah, no one will find the body. Uh, oldest brother Reuben talks them out of it secretly because he is planning to rescue Joseph to score some, some brownie points with dad. But then he takes off for a bit. And then some Ishmaelite traders from a place called Midian come by. And Judah sees those guys and he gets an idea. So he tells his brothers, hey guys, you know, we really shouldn't kill our brother. I mean, he's our own flesh and blood. That would be crazy. Why would we kill him when we can instead sell him and make a profit? So they sell him into slavery. Reuben comes back. He's distressed, but, well, he's in too deep now, so he joins the cover-up. They take the fancy coat. They put some animal blood on it. They take it back to Dad. They say, hey, uh, what do you think happened? He's like, oh, a wild animal must have got him. And then he is, he's inconsolable. Like, he literally refuses to be comforted, so Jacob promises to go down to his grave in mourning for his son. So the brothers kind of get a little taste of maybe some of the consequences of their actions here. So, so now, we're going to start to assemble a little puzzle here, because this, is, this was kind of our theme at camp this year as well. So this was, if this was our theme verse, this was kind of our, our theme was this idea of a puzzle. A puzzle that God is working on that Joseph doesn't have all the pieces of. He's got some pieces. He knows, you know, he's the favorite son. He has this dream, but then he gets thrown in a pit. He gets sold off into slavery. But you'll notice he's still alive. He's been spared from death. His brothers really wanted to kill him, but that didn't happen. So the question then is, when Joseph's life seems to have fallen apart, it seems like it's all over, has God abandoned him? Has God left him? Did he leave him? Did he forget him in the pit? Has he, left, has he forgotten him as he's taken off? into slavery. And this is something where I, you know, I think anyone who's lived on this earth long enough has probably experienced a moment where it feels like your life has fallen apart. And the same question, I think, is something that we'll all face at some point in our lives, is like, where is God right now? So for Joseph, we see that God is actually with him in Egypt. 
because that is where the Midianite traders carry him off to. It says, when Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, so he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. So the answer to the question then is, well, God hadn't abandoned him. He was still with Joseph, but he's with Joseph in Egypt and in slavery. Probably not where Joseph wanted to be at that point. He probably would have vastly preferred to go back home and see his father again. Maybe not his brothers, but definitely his father. So that's interesting. Like, so God, but God, you know, it's like he's, you know, so he's in a pretty decent spot now. I mean, he's not being worked to death out in the fields. He is running an entire estate, which, given for, you know, depending on how rich Potiphar was, this may have been a very large estate, but he's in charge of all of it, and he's succeeding with God's help and with God's purpose. However, things are not all right for, for, for long because well, it all starts with something that doesn't seem like a downside. You see, Joseph, as it turns out, was a very attractive man. Now, you might think, why is that a problem? Well, the problem is because the person who noticed this was Potiphar's wife. And she noticed, so she decides that she really would like to sleep with Joseph and starts pressuring him to that end. Joseph refuses. And I think the reason he refuses is pretty interesting, actually, because it tells us kind of what he's thinking here. Because he could have cited all kinds of reasons. He could have said, like, hey, if we get caught, who do you think is going to get killed? You know, it's like probably the, probably the weird foreigner who's a slave and has no rights, right? He could have said that, but instead he says, no, I can't do this. It would be a great sin against God. Joseph, even in this place, recognizes that his success has come from God and that God is with him and that he can't, you know, to, to do this thing, which, you know, this would be the easy thing to do in this situation. Just go for it, go with it, whatever, right? But he doesn't. And he cites that he's, trying, he's being faithful to God in this. So what he does is he tries to avoid Potiphar's wife. He tries not to be in the house when she's there. But there comes a day when his work duties require him to be in the house. As it turns out, all the other servants are out for a while. Potiphar's wife finds him, and she decides to try to force the issue. She grabs him by the cloak. And Joseph, realizing, once again, this would be bad, this would be sin, he spies an opportunity. He slides out of his cloak, and he gets out of the house. He just sprints out. Whatever he was going to do that day, not getting done. So he remains faithful to God. He doesn't succumb to this pressure. And, okay, so what, is, what happens? What does God do for him then? Well, what happens next is Potiphar's wife is left holding the cloak, so she goes around concocting a story that it was the other way around, that Joseph was the one who was trying to force her into something she didn't want to do. Which is a bald-faced lie, but, well, who do you think everyone believes? The wife of the master or the weird foreigner who's a slave? If you said the weird foreigner who's a slave, I mean, that for, that's a quite a mouthful. I'm not sure why you would have said that. But that would be, it's, it's, no, um, he, they all believe the wife, Potiphar, has Joseph thrown into prison. So at this point, we are once again left with this question of, has God abandoned Joseph? Has he forgotten about him? Has he rejected Joseph? I mean, it seems like Joseph was doing the right thing. He was being faithful to God. There's no obvious, like, sin or something he would have done wrong here. Because as a kid, you could be like, well, you know, he was a spoiled brat. He got, you know, it's like, he, if he hadn't done that, his brothers wouldn't have. But like here, it's like, well, there's no, there's, you can't even find that. 
this too is, I think, a situation that many of us may very well face in our lives. You may have something in mind already of a time when things seemed to be going wrong for you and it didn't seem like there was anything you were doing wrong. You couldn't pinpoint something of like, well, it wasn't the big mistake. Is it, it's easier when we make a big mistake and look back and go like, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Um, it's another thing when it's like, well, what was Joseph supposed to do? Now, what we see, though, if we look to... Sorry, this is the trouble with doing a physical Bible. I wanted to actually use the Camper Bible, but the Camper Bible likes to close if I'm not careful with it. Okay, so, towards the end of chapter 39, we see, it says in verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. So in other words, God's still with Joseph. The answer to the question is, God's still there. He hasn't rejected Joseph. So it's a a repeat scenario, and maybe he's a little less free now. I mean, he is, of course, now in prison, but now he's running the prison from the inside. He's in charge of the other, well, he's he's in charge of the prisoners, not the prison, I guess, but you, you you get what I mean. And it's here that Joseph has a fortuitous encounter with a couple of Pharaoh's chief officers. You see, Pharaoh gets mad at a couple of these guys. One is the chief cupbearer. This is the guy who would taste Pharaoh's wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Um, It was actually a really good job if you could get it, as long as no one poisoned Pharaoh. Like, it was a really good job. Um, The other guy was the chief baker. Probably don't need to explain what he did. We don't know what they did to anger Pharaoh, but we know that they ended up in jail. And one night, they each have a dream. Now, it's a unique dream for each of them, but they have a dream, but it's the same night. They wake up, they both realize these dreams were something special, but there's no one who can interpret, so they don't know what they mean. Joseph notices that they're upset. He asks them why, and when they tell him, he says, well, God can interpret dreams, so tell me what you dreamed. So, uh, cupbearer goes first. He says he had a dream where he had three bunches of grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, handed it to Pharaoh. Joseph says that the three bunches of grapes means three days. In three days, Pharaoh is going to take him out of prison and give him his job back. And then Joseph adds a little something extra. He's like, hey, when you see Pharaoh next, can you please tell him about me? I was stolen from my land as a kid. I was falsely accused. I shouldn't really be here. Can you just please put in a good word for me? Now, the baker, he hears this good interpretation, so he goes next and he says, okay, I had three baskets of bread, but the birds ate it all. Okay, Joseph says, three baskets, that means three days, and three days, Pharaoh's going to take you out of prison, and he's going to execute you. So, probably not what he was expecting or hoping for after the other interpretation, but that's how it goes, because it does happen exactly as Joseph predicts. Um, the cupbearer gets his job back, so Pharaoh throws a big birthday party, he brings back the cupbearer, but then he executes the other guy, which I guess that's just a normal thing at Pharaoh birthday parties. Um, I guess be glad you're not going to any Pharaoh birthday parties anytime soon, uh, if you're squeamish. So, The thing is, though, the cupbearer completely forgets about Joseph in all the festivities. Once again, did God forget about Joseph? Where is God now? Because this is a moment, so Joseph has this ray of light, right, where it's like, this is my chance. I have a guy who literally works with Pharaoh every day. That's part of why being cupbearer was a good job. Like, you actually had the ear of the the, the king, you know? here's this chance, like this might be my moment that God is finally going to spring me from captivity. Nope, didn't happen. Not for two whole years. But as we see, God had not forgotten about Joseph because after two whole years, Pharaoh has a, has a dream. And not just one dream, he has two dreams in the same night. 
and he's distressed. He doesn't know what they mean. He knows they mean something, just not what they mean. And he calls all of, his, all of his wisest men, all of his magicians from all over the country, and they can't tell him what it means either. They're just like, sorry, can't help you. And this is when the cupbearer realizes that he messed up. He's like, oh, no, I screwed up. I forgot. Um, hey, Pharaoh, you remember that time a couple years back where you were really mad at me and threw me in jail? Ah, good times. Anyway, there's a guy in there who interpreted my dreams. Um, Pharaoh says, let's get him up here. So he, they bring Joseph out of jail, clean him up, and he comes before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tells him, I had these dreams. I heard you can interpret dreams. Joseph says, well, I can't, but God can. So go ahead and tell me your dreams. So, the dreams. First one, Pharaoh is standing by the bank of the Nile. He sees seven really good, healthy-looking cows come up out of the Nile. Just great cows, just all around, 10 out of 10. Um, they're eating the grass by the Nile when seven more cows come out of the Nile, but these ones are very sick-looking, just very thin, very scraggly-looking cows. And these cows come out, and they eat the seven good cows. And afterwards, they're just as skinny as before. So Pharaoh wakes up, and he's... I, I, I don't know exactly how he felt then, but I would assume if I had a dream about cows eating cows, I would be very distressed when I woke up. So he's somehow able to go back to sleep and has another dream. This time he sees in a stalk of grain with seven ears on it, very good, very healthy-looking ears, just juicy, the kind you want to eat. Um, and then he sees from the same stalk grow seven really, just really nasty, sick-looking ears of grain. And I don't know how this works, but the seven sickly ears of grain eat the seven good ears. I don't know how grain eats grain. It's a dream. Don't worry about it. Point is, Joseph hears these dreams, and he responds, okay, the two dreams have the same meaning. The fact that there's two of them just means that God's going to really do this, like he's, he's really serious. They both, so the good cows and the good grain represent seven years of bountiful harvests where you're going to have a lot of extra food. But then the seven bad cows, the seven bad ears represent seven years of famine. They're going to come after that, and they are, you're going to have no food. It's going to be so bad that you aren't even going to remember the good years. And then Joseph goes on to make a recommendation. He says you should get someone who's really wise and responsible to run, the king, to run a, a program to basically take all the extra food during the good years, store it away, and then distribute it during the seven bad years so that you don't all starve. Pharaoh responds, well, you seem like a pretty wise and responsible guy, and you've clearly got the Spirit of God in you, so um, that's your job now. So Joseph, who, remember, woke up in jail that morning, um, is now second in command only to Pharaoh. Pharaoh literally tells him, like, only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So he doesn't just put him in charge of the grain, like, he just puts him in charge of Egypt. Um, which is a pretty wild ride, considering he, get, he came to Egypt as a slave. And this is where we begin to see a few more of these puzzle pieces fall into place. Because, after all, it's like we, you know, Joseph, no one could have predicted that this is where Joseph's life was going. He certainly couldn't have. He didn't have all the pieces. He only could see what was in front of him, which oftentimes was really bad. And yet, it's interesting. I just noticed this, and this is why reading your Bible, like, regularly is really good. Um, something I noticed for the first time as I was preparing this is God was using those bad situations in Joseph's life to prepare him for this moment. You'll notice that in Potiphar's house, he had Joseph managing the whole estate. In prison, he had Joseph managing all the prisoners. And now Joseph is managing a country, which admittedly is a big step up, but he's got some experience. And it's kind of fascinating to me to see that in how God's plan came together, because 
Once again, who could have thought? And this is what's fascinating to me, is when things go sideways in our lives, when it feels like everything's falling apart, we don't always know where it's going to go. And in my own life, I've had opportunities to see how things have worked out. Like, looking back in time, like, it's like, oh, I didn't get into the, the college I really wanted to go to, but the one I ended up in was actually really good. Like, I can, I can point to things like that. There's also things in my life where it's like, hmm, less clear. But we'll get back to that. Because right now, you might notice something about this puzzle, which is that the pieces aren't all present yet. Now, you might be like, well, wait a minute. Isn't this the happily ever after? I mean, I know how old Disney stories work. You know, it's like, I mean, you know, it's like Joseph, I mean, he, he triumphs, right? So he went through all these hardships. He's finally got, he's finally triumphed. You know, Pharaoh hooks him up with a nice house, hooks him up with a wife from a prominent Egyptian family. And as we all know, you know, they get married and they live happily ever after. That's how marriage works, right? You get married and then everything is fine. Why are you laughing? <laughs> okay. So this feels like this should be the ending of the story, but it's not, because as we find out, the famine is in more than just Egypt. So we will pick back up in chapter 42. When Jacob heard that grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another? I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive, otherwise we'll die. So Joseph's ten older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. But Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother Benjamin go with them for fear that some harm might come to him. So in other words, dad's still playing favorites. Just now it's the, young, now it's the next brother down. Um, anyway, Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with the others to buy food, for the famine was in Canaan as well. Since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. Sound familiar? I know where I'm at. All right, a few more verses here. Okay, so Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from? He demanded. From the land of Canaan, they replied. We have come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. And he remembered the dreams he'd had about them many years before. He said to them, you are spies. You have come to see how vulnerable our land has become. So this kicks off a several chapters worth of, J of Joseph messing with his brothers, basically. So he pretends he doesn't know them because they don't recognize him. It's been 20 years, so they don't recognize him at all because they're also not expecting to see him in Egypt either. It's like, it's, if, if you, I don't know if you've ever been on a trip and you see someone from like your hometown in this random place. Like, it's like, it's like, why are you in Indiana? You live in Washington. Anyway, they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them and he treats them like spies. And he, so he asks them a bunch of pointed questions. Um, and when they tell him they have a younger brother, he says, okay, you are going to prove that you're not spies by bringing that younger brother here. And to make sure you do, you're not allowed to buy more grain until you, until you do that. And also you have to go get, you have to, you know, um, you have to bring your younger brother. Oh, and I'm going to keep one of your other brothers prisoner just so you, to make sure you actually come back. So they go home, they tell their dad, that Egyptian governor guy is crazy. He accuses us of being spies. He kidnapped Simeon. It's awful. Then they open up their sacks and find the money they used to pay for the grain is back in their sacks. 
Now, Joseph, we know because the narrator tells us Joseph is the one who put the money in their sex. They don't know. And at this point, they think that God is finally punishing them for what they did to Joseph. They, they actually have a conversation in front of him in Hebrew because at this point, he's pretending to be an Egyptian. Presumably, that means he's talking like an Egyptian, possibly walking like an Egyptian. We don't know. Uh, but they actually have a co- so they actually have a conversation in front of him where they say, all this bad stuff is clearly happening to us because of what we did to Joseph. Uh, Reuben says, I told you so. Um, anyway, so when they get back to, jo- to Jacob, he says, there's no way you're taking Benjamin. Some time passes. They run out, they're running out of food. It's like, okay, maybe you're taking Benjamin. Uh, so Judah, you may remember him as Mr. Hey, let's sell Joseph. Um, he steps up and says he will personally guarantee Benjamin's safety. Now, honestly, Judah at this point would not be the guy that I would want personally guaranteeing my son's safety, if I had one. Um, But he guarantees it, and Jacob recognizes reality that they they need food. So he lets Benjamin go. When they get down there, Joseph actually throws them a big feast. They are still weirded out, like, why is this this happening? Um, He actually seats them according to birth order. He shouldn't be able to know that. So he's still messing with them. And then he messes with them further by doing the, uh, the, the money in the sack trick again, but then he also adds a little something extra in Benjamin's sack, namely a very expensive silver cup. And so, when he ha- so then he has the brothers arrested. They come back, they look through the bags. Guess what? There's a silver cup in Benjamin's sack. So Joseph says, I am going to keep this guy who stole from me. Remember, he's been framed. He didn't actually steal. But I'm going to keep this guy who stole from me here as my servant, but the rest of you can go home. And to me, I, the narrator doesn't tell us this. So this, is, this is a theory. I'm putting an asterisk on that. This is an Alex theory. Um, I suspect that this is what Jacob, no, Jacob, Joseph was getting at the whole time. I think he wanted to see how his brothers would treat the new favorite when given an opportunity to save their own skins as opposed to him. So what we see here is Judah steps up and he makes like probably I think the longest one of the longest speeches if not the longest speech in Genesis where he tells the Egyptian governor guy the unnamed Egyptian um, all about his father and his other son and how like if they're if they come back without this youngest brother their father will probably just die of grief and he says I can't that'd be awful please take me instead and this is the point where Joseph can't keep it up anymore. He breaks down. He finally tells his brothers who he is. They don't believe him at first, but he convinces them. He tells them, look, don't be angry at yourselves. Don't beat yourselves up about this. This was God's plan. God is the one who sent me here, not you. Now you go back and get dad and get your families because there's five more years of famine. But if you, move, if you move everybody down to Egypt, I can protect you and take care of you. They go back. They tell Jacob that Joseph is alive. Jacob doesn't believe them. He, they convince him. He finally comes down. They're reunited. There's a lot of hugging and crying. For, it says just for a great while. So I assume for a long, yeah, probably a long time. Uh, a lot of emotions there. And jo- Joseph does what he promised. He takes care of them. And for the next 17 years, he continues to do that. And then after 17 years, at the ripe old age of 147, Jacob finally dies, which... Pretty decent run, pretty decent run. 147 is, is good. So the thing is, the brothers are now worried because they've never really gotten over that guilt. They're still afraid that Joseph is going to punish them. And to be fair, he had the power, right? He's basically Pharaoh Jr. If he wanted to make them suffer as he had, he could do that. So what he does instead, though, is in chapter 50, 
So we're, we're skipping ahead a few chapters. There's a few chapters of Jacob kind of getting ready to die, and he's, he's talking to his kids. Um, but in chapter 50, in verse 19, we see what Joseph says to his brothers when they come to him, and they're, they're basically just begging him, please don't kill us. He says, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. So the final piece of the puzzle here was forgiveness. Reconciliation with his family. See, Joseph could have been content with the incomplete puzzle because he was in a relatively, you know, comfortable spot. Why do I say relatively? He was in charge of everything. He was probably very comfortable. But he manages to reconcile with his family because he does. The entire nation of Israel gets to exist. If he hadn't helped his brothers, if he just let them starve, they would have all died. If he had decided to punish them, they would have all died. It would, there would be no nation of Israel. In fact, in, in a lot of ways, it kind of feels like, and this is something we got to kind of get into more in youth group, because a little, little peek behind the scenes here with track, we don't always know what kind of background these campers have. Some of them have never heard of Jesus as anything other than a swear word. So for us, so some of it is just introducing them to these, these concepts. In youth group, it was kind of cool this year because we got to go into a little bit more about how Joseph's life kind of looks a lot like Jesus' life. I mean, he went through a lot of suffering to ultimately bring about a great salvation. And he even forgave those who hurt him. Now, Joseph, he saved people from starvation. Jesus saved people from their sins. So, a little bit different, but the, the themes are there. So what do we see then? Well, what we see is a complete puzzle. Now, in real, in real life, I don't think we ever get to see quite such a concise, complete picture. There, there's always going to be loose ends, threads that we never see the, the outcome of. But the idea is, going back to Romans 8.28, is God is working all things together for the good, for good, but it's according to those who are called according to his purpose for them, not theirs. It wasn't Joseph's plan to become a slave. It wasn't Joseph's plan to go to prison. It wasn't Joseph's plan to rule Egypt. That would be a little megalomaniacal of him. And yet that was God's plan, and Joseph, he was faithful. And he ultimately got to, he did kind of get to see the outcome of that. And one of the things that's been fascinating for me studying Joseph, so whenever I teach a lesson at youth group or at track or anywhere, really, it's like I usually learn some things myself. And it's funny, it's almost like focused study on the Bible with commentaries and multiple translations, all that stuff. It's almost like that's a good way to learn things. Funny how that works. Uh, although with the story of Joseph, it's been interesting because the lesson was a lot more, shall we say, tactile for me personally. Yeah, I'm going to be a little real with you all. Um, so, while I was preparing specifically for track, during, kind of during this period of time, a couple of months ago, I had, I had I experienced something where it did kind of feel like my life was falling apart a little bit, because I have a number of, over the years I've kind of been accumulating, it feels like I've been accumulating a number of uh, just sort of unexplained health problems. And they range from varying degrees of just kind of uncomfortable to really uncomfortable. But for a couple, of, but a little while back, for about a month, they became rather debilitating. You see, 
I may not be able to necessarily always relate to what, say, campers at track are going through. I've never been in the foster care system. I don't know what that's like. But a lot of these campers experience a number of different things, like, uh, for example, anxiety disorders. I know what that feels like now. According to some very, very professional and, and knowledgeable medical people in my life, um, anxiety is normal. It's normal to get nervous before a big test. It's normal to get nervous before standing in front of a whole crowd of people. It's very normal. Um, what's not normal is when you feel like that all the time, and you can't pinpoint anything that's causing it. And when that gets really bad, it can be kind of crippling. There was, about a period, there was about a month back, in the, back this summer, right, most of the month of June, where it was a good day if I got out of bed, put on some clean clothes, did, some basic, you know, did the basic hygiene stuff, and fed myself three square meals. That was a good day. It was a great day if I made it to the grocery store. And that was my life for a month. And there was a lot of, you know, there were a lot of late nights, sleepless nights, the thing about anxiety is your brain is like, there is a bear somewhere, it's going to get you. Or if there's something dangerous somewhere, it's going to get you. I don't even know what it is. It's going to get you, and you can't sleep. Um, there was a lot of yelling at the ceiling, asking God, why the heck is this happening? And I say that because, reading through the story of Joseph, I realized that there were a lot of moments where that was probably how Joseph felt. It's like, I think I kind of get that a little bit more now. And God did not make it all go away. I cannot stand before you today and say I am completely healed and whole. I can say that I'm doing a little better. I'm continuing to seek treatment for both the other health stuff and for the anxiety stuff. Like I'm continuing to seek treatment. I'm not just being like, well, it's all in God's hands, so I'm going to do nothing. If anything, what I learned was doing nothing that month was doing nothing wasn't working. I tried nothing, and then I was all out of ideas. Um, <laughs> fortunately, I have a lot of very kind, caring people in my life who did have, do have ideas and have been very kind and helpful to me. Um, so while I'm doing better, I'm not all the way better. And the fact of the matter is, I don't know what God's doing with it. Couldn't really tell you, actually. Like I said, there are parts of my life where I can look back and I can see, oh, that's what he was doing. I don't know what he's doing with me right now. So I am, I am in this zone where it's like, God's got, I, I love jigsaw puzzles. I wish I had the picture on the box because I love the picture on the box. That really helps. I don't have the picture on the box. God has that. I'm in the place where it's like, we're still like, there's one or two pieces on the board and I don't know where the rest are going. I say that because you don't have to be a foster kid or have been in the foster system to experience the kind of things Joseph went through. Now, you may never experience something to that degree, but the fact of the matter is, the Bible never promises that everything's going to always be good. That's not what this verse is saying. The promise is that God is with us in the hard places of our lives and that he is going to use them for good. We, we live in a broken world. And as long as free will exists, people will do bad things with it. What Joseph's brothers did was evil, but God used it for good. And that's how Joseph, part of, part of how Joseph was able to forgive them was he realized like it wasn't his place to take revenge. God, you know, God was working in his life and he trusted him. So where does that leave us? Well, where does that leave me? Okay, so yeah, I'll speak for myself. So, Part of what I had to come to terms with over that month was the idea that I was not abandoned by God. I was not rejected by God. I was not forgotten by God. I was not neglected by God. I will tell you, there were nights where I was just like, oh, I really need you to show up right now, and he didn't show up right now. And then he showed up later. <laughs> and it's, 
I say this, it's like, I say this because I can say from experience, it's hard. I'm sure, Joseph, it was hard. It's easy for us to read about Bible characters sometimes and be like, ah, well, he was able to do that because he was some kind of superhuman, you know, Bible man. Um, no, he wasn't. Joseph was a guy. Elijah was a guy. David was a guy. Jesus, being God, I mean, he's a little bit different with Jesus, but he was still fully man. He still felt everything. Everything that he went through. All the emotions, all of the physical and emotional pain that he went through. But God doesn't forget or abandon us. He's working all things together, but it's according to his purpose and not ours. I wish I could tell you there was a secret formula. There isn't. Some people will try to tell you that. They're lying. It's like if you look at any Bible character who has more than two sentences written about them, you will see that they went through hard stuff, even the most righteous ones. Even the most righteous man, Jesus. But God isn't going to forget about you. That, I think, is the moral of the story today. Thank you.